Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Thank you so much for being here today. If you're joining from online, we're just going to assume that you're like in your bed with a blanket and have a space heater and a warm cup of coffee. And let's just be honest, we're jealous, right? A little bit. We faced the cold wind and we're here and we, uh, yeah, we don't have those things. No, we are grateful that you can join us online and I'm so grateful for you uh, being here today. It is good to be in the house of the Lord no matter the weather outside. And I've tried to remember when it's cold like this, there's going to be a day in August where I would long for today. And so I am storing up every sin memory that I can, and I'm just going to bring it out on that day in August when it's 200% humidity and 1,000 degrees outside. I will remember today. That's what I'm doing. At least that's what I'm telling myself. I don't know. It's just, it's still cold outside. That's why we moved to this part of the world, right? So we don't have to deal with this sort of stuff. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about the miracle of the church, and for me, it has been a helpful reminder of just how miraculous it, it is to be a part of this great movement of believers throughout time. Since Jesus was alive on this earth, to be a part of what he began, what he promised to build, we are a part of that. And sometimes I don't always think of the church as miraculous. I can think of, of the church as kind of like what Andy was describing. It's something I do each week. It's just where I go. It's a routine. It's a habit. It's not a miracle. And yet when I step back and I think about the fact that Jesus promised to build his church and yet we endure throughout time, throughout languages, throughout technology, throughout any pandemics that have existed, the church endures. That is a miracle. When I think about the fact that God welcomes us into his family, he adopts us in, that is, that is a miracle. When I think about what Christ has called us to do to forgive one another, how outside of the church that makes absolutely zero sense. We're supposed to have enemies and we're supposed to hold grudges and we're supposed to know who owes us. That's how life is supposed to work. And yet inside the family, that's not how it works at all. Instead, we offer forgiveness freely because Christ has forgiven us. That is a miracle. It is a miracle. And when I approach today's verse, this, this transition moment, when Jesus is about to leave the earth and he's about to hand over the movement to the disciples, when, it, when he's giving them the final instructions, I hear these verses. I think about this last moment, and I'm, it's so familiar to me that I'm encouraged, but I don't always think about it as a miracle. You see, because I read these verses and I have the benefit of history on my side. I know how this story is going to end. I know where it's headed. I know that we're still here today. Therefore, they must have done some things right along the way. Even if I don't know the full story of, of the acts of the early church, I know that the church endures. I know what's going to happen. And so I don't read this with the same uncertainty with which the disciples would have heard it. 
A few months ago, ESPN had a documentary, The The Last Dance. It was about Michael Jordan's last year on the Chicago Bulls, but really it was a chronicle of his whole time in the NBA, and I loved it. It was appointment viewing for me because I grew up watching basketball at all of this time. And so watching these events, I I remember like watching them on TV when they happened, and I I remember where I was. I was at my grandparents' house when uh, Michael Jordan passed the ball to John Paxson and 1993, and he hit the game-winning shot against the Suns, and they won the championship. Like, I remember that. And so to see the documentary and how it all unfolds, oh, it was so nostalgic for me. I loved watching it. It was so much fun. But I caught myself a few times because there would be a moment sometimes where I was so engrossed in the story, and I would wonder, are the Bulls going to win? What's going to happen here? And then I'd step back, and I'm like, I know what happens here. I know how this all ends. I've seen all of this. I know that they're going to win. I know he's going to hit that shot over Byron Russell, and they're going to win the championship. They're going to have their repeat, three-peat. Like, I know where this is going. But I was so engrossed in the story that I would just get caught up like, oh, are they going to beat the Pacers? Yes, they beat the Pacers. I know how this ends. Sometimes when I approach Scripture, I find myself that way. I want to engage with it like I don't know everything else that's happened because I want it to be fresh. I want it to be new. I want to try and place myself in the same context as the disciples, but that's hard because we know where the story is going It's actually one of those things that can be challenging for us that when it comes to our life right now, we don't know where the story is going, right? We don't always know, which can be a very big challenge. It's part of our our limited human perspective. And when we can think about it that way, maybe we can begin to think about what the disciples experienced because they had that limited human perspective. They didn't know where the story was going to go. And that's how we feel about our lives a lot of days, isn't it? We don't know where our story is going. We don't know what's going to happen in a week or a month or a year. And so we're not always sure. And and saying it that way, there ought to be a, a huge amount of enthusiasm and optimism about how life might turn out. Right? I mean, the fact that we don't know what next week is going to hold. We don't know what's going to happen in a month. We don't know where life will be in a year. There ought to be this sense of just, you know, uh, enthusiasm. We ought to look ahead and think, oh my goodness, who knows what possibilities exist out there? But that's not how I feel when I come face to face with my limited human perspective. When I, when I have to grapple with the fact that I don't know where the story is going, most of the time that brings up some anxiety. Because I can look back at my history and I can start to project my past failures into the future. I can start to think about all the times I've come up a little short and think, oh my goodness, if next year's anything like last year, uh, I, don't, I don't know about this. I don't know where this story's gonna go. I don't know how things are gonna unfold, but I, man, things could get a lot worse. Right? Have you ever had those moments where you just you look ahead and you realize, I don't know where this is going, I don't know how the story is going to unfold, and it brings up anxiety. In fact, for many of us, this can be the place where our faith actually starts to be put to the test and can break. Not in the sense where you say, I don't believe in God, or I don't think the Bible's true. It's not that faith breaks in that way, but our trust Our devotion in God, our trust that God is going to provide, that he's going to come through, it can be tested and sometimes break. 
We look ahead and we're just not sure, how how is this going to get any better? How is life going to improve at all? And we can start to take steps to say, you know what? I'm not sure that God actually has all this under control. I'm going to take things into my own hands. I'm going to have to make some things happen because I'm not even sure that God is aware of how difficult it is for me. When we realize, I don't don't know where the story's going, I don't know the entire story, sometimes our faith can be tested to the point that it can break. We may say, oh, sure, that investment sounds good. This business opportunity, I should move there. That relationship, we start to take things in our own power because we're just not sure that things are gonna go the way that God has promised them to be. We don't know the whole story. The disciples certainly didn't. When they heard Jesus say these things, they didn't know the whole story. They didn't know how things would turn out. They didn't know that we would be sitting here 2,000 years later thinking about what they were going to do next. They didn't know. What, how did they feel about that? Was there enthusiasm or was there some dread? Was there some worry? Was there some anxiety when Jesus spoke these words? Ulysses S. Grant, the president of the United States after the Civil War, is one of the most fascinating historical characters for me. And and a great reminder to me of of what it means to not know how the story is going to, to unfold. Because when we think about Grant, we probably think about like the general in the Civil War who ultimately was victorious for the Union and uh, he's the one who accepted the surrender of Robert E. Lee, and you might remember that from, from history class. You, you might have remembered reading a little bit about him and how he was the president who led the reconstruction effort, which think about that, like the country having been separated and he's somehow able to, to begin to heal those wounds and bring people back together, and there's some key decisions that he made that facilitate that happening. I mean, he's, he's an incredible leader in our American history. But if we were to go back in Grant's life, there's no way that we would think that's the outcome that he was destined for. He grew up a pretty common childhood. He was fortunate enough to go off to West Point, but he did not distinguish himself at all while he was at West Point. He didn't graduate at the top of his class. He didn't get one of the the greatest commissions coming out of West Point. He was just a ho-hum student. He made it out, he finished, and he went into service in the Army. And most of his time in the army, not particularly noteworthy at all. He served as a quartermaster for a while. He helped get supplies, and he did okay at it, but it wasn't the kind of thing where he was just progressing up through the ranks. And after a few years, he was actually drummed out of the service because of a drinking problem. And when he is is let out of the army, he is so poor that he can't make it home. He doesn't have enough money to get home to his wife and to his family, He tries some different business ventures, some different opportunities, and nothing works for him. He is one failure after another. And eventually, when he's able to make it home without any other prospects on the horizon, Grant decides to take up farming, which, surprise, surprise, he's not very good at. That's kind of his legacy up to this moment. He tries farming, not really making a living out of it. His wife and his children and him, they're living in a house that he built with his own hands, and it's so poor and just rough, he names it Hard Scrabble, which is really just the summation of his life up to that point. And in 1855, if we were in St. Louis, we might have met Grant at that moment. 
Now, not because he's running for, you know, political office or not because he's doing something of note in the town. No, in 1855, Grant found himself on the side of the road in St. Louis selling firewood to try and make ends meet. That's where Grant was, penniless farmer selling firewood just to be able to provide the basic essentials for his family. And yet 10 years later, he would be leading the entire Union Army. He would accept the surrender of Robert E. Lee, and eventually he would become president. That is the most unlikely story you could ever imagine. And it's a great reminder that we don't know where the story is going to go at all. And if presidential history isn't your thing, maybe the very existence of the church can remind us we don't know how the story is going to unfold. That sometimes at the bleakest moments, when we think all is lost, God has something much, much better planned. Jesus is talking to the disciples. This is the last encounter they're going to have before he is taken up into heaven. And in Acts 1, really this particular passage starts in verse 6. The disciples come up to Jesus and they ask this question. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus answers. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority And then he delivers verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The last interaction. This is it. These are the final words that Jesus speaks to the disciples. There's this great significance of that. These are the last words that would have been ringing in their brains for weeks and months and years to come. This last exchange between Jesus and the disciples. Now, after Jesus' resurrection, we read that he goes and he teaches the disciples, and they have meals together, and he shows up at different places, and, and over and over and over again, he's, he's reminding them of all that he has taught them and trying to, to reframe it in the context of the resurrection. But this is the last moment. This is the last thing. This is the last words that he's going to say to them. And in that moment, he delivers the calling for the disciples, the thing that he wants them to do. He says they're going to receive power, but power to do what? So that they can be his witnesses. He tells them, you're going to receive power so that you can be my witnesses. That is their calling. That's what he wants the disciples to do. Go and be my witnesses. Now, that's not exactly where the disciples thought things were going to head. And we get that because we know the question that they asked. We kind of get an insight into how they thought things were going to play out. Because they asked Jesus, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples thought that all of Jesus' work, everything that had happened, his death and his resurrection, had led to the moment where they were now going to establish a political kingdom 
that that's what everything had been building to. In their minds, as they kind of did the calculus and realized, they thought, oh my goodness, this is perfect, it makes sense. Jesus is now going to establish this political dynasty, this political reign, this political kingdom. That's what's going to happen. Lord, is this the moment? They can't kill you. They've already tried. It's time for us to throw off our oppressors. Is this the time that you're going to establish the kingdom? Now, for them, I'm sure that we can understand how that made sense. They were living not oppressed in the way we might use the word oppressed. I mean, they were literally living in occupied land. They had people who oppressed them that taxed them relentlessly in a way that we would never understand. There was a violent threat that was always on the edge of their life. If they stepped out of line, if they bucked the authority of the Roman government, they knew where that led, and it led to death, a painful, excruciating, public death. That's what Rome did to traitors. They crucified them. They put them on display. That's what happened. We hear the term Pax Romana in history class, and there's this idea of a very peaceful Roman empire, but it was peace from a sword. There wasn't anything but peace. Violence was always at the edge of their life. And they thought, now's the moment. We're going to throw all of that off, and now we get to be in charge. We are the ones who are going to have authority. That's what they thought all of this had been building towards. And Jesus brushes aside those comments. He doesn't even really answer. He doesn't go in. He just pushes past them and says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, which is an interesting thing about Jesus. Because there are moments when he has the opportunity for political power. And you know what Jesus does every time? He sidesteps it. They're going to make him into a king. The crowd is excited. Jesus walks right past him and leaves. Jesus, it's almost like he wasn't interested in political power, that there was something else that he was pursuing. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, don't. It's not for you to know those times. Don't worry about that. Instead, I want you to be my witnesses. That's what Jesus calls them to do, is to be his witnesses. The word he uses there, it's the Greek word martus. It's the word we get martyr from. And witness, uh, like when we hear the word witness today, what, kinda, what comes to your mind? Courtroom, everybody's so fast with that courtroom, right? Like, yeah, we should, uh, what about a notary public? What about marriage? There's all these other occasions. No, we're like, witness? Oh, that's like court. Uh, we, we maybe should temper that just a little bit. But that is the same thing they would have thought as well. It had to do with trials. It had to do with courts. That's what a witness was in their time. A witness was a legal observer of facts. Same thing for us, right? A witness today is somebody who observes something and can enter that testimony in a legal environment. I saw this person do that. I heard them say this. That's what a witness was then. That's what a witness is now. A witness was expected to have direct personal knowledge. Like you didn't want third-hand testimony. You didn't want your, your brothers, sisters, neighbors, friends, dog watchers, cousin who lives out of town. Like that's not the kind of, no, a witness should have been there personally. They should have heard what got said. They should have seen what happened. They wanted to have direct personal knowledge. 
few years ago when LeBron James was playing basketball in Cleveland, Nike ran an ad campaign that said, we are all witnesses. And they wanted to tap into that idea. Like the idea of LeBron James is so good, you don't want to just hear about it from somebody else. You don't want to just read about it in the paper. Like you want to see it with your own eyes. You want to have direct personal knowledge. Like you want to see what's taking place right in front of you. You want to witness this. That's what a witness was in their time. Somebody who had direct personal knowledge and could legally enter in testimony about some facts. That's what a witness was. A witness might show up when somebody was taking an oath, when a treaty was getting signed, maybe when there was the the sale or purchase of land. A witness would show up and say, yes, they agreed to this, they agreed to this, here's where the boundary is going to be. That's what a witness would do. And they could be called on later to affirm the agreement that was made. A witness, of course, was expected to be trustworthy. In the book of Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament law, it says that witnesses who were uh, false, who, who lied, false witnesses were to be punished severely because a witness should be trustworthy. They should be trustworthy about what they saw. And when called upon, they could provide legal testimony. They were an observer of certain facts. That's what a witness was then. That's what a witness is now. And Jesus says, I'm calling on you to be my witnesses. I want you to go out and tell people what has happened. And the disciples hear that and they take the ball and run with it. In fact, if you're reading through the book of Acts, one of the things that you could do is you could look at the word witness and just try and find it in every chapter because it forms a little bit of a thread that ties together the earliest stories of the church. Peter's sermons, he almost always says it. Let me give you a synopsis of Peter's sermons. Here's what they are. We all know who Jesus was. We know what he was about. You killed him. God raised him to life. We're all witnesses of this. That's what Peter's sermon was. We all know who Jesus was. We know what he was about. You killed him. And when he says that, like he literally says, you killed him. He wasn't talking just about people metaphorically or like Jesus metaphorically died. No, he was talking to the people who were in the courtyard yelling, crucify him, crucify him. You, right here in front of me, you killed him. But God raised him to life. And of that, we're all witnesses. We all saw what happened. That's Peter's sermon over and over and over again because that's what Jesus called them to do. He said, go and be my witnesses. Go and tell the story. Go and tell what you saw. Be my witnesses. And when Peter does that, when the other disciples do that, the church grows and it expands and it gets bigger and new people start joining and they share their story of what happens and over and over and over again we see one witness after another sharing their story and the church expands and grows and grows and grows all because of some witnesses, all because of their testimony. But you know, it's amazing that this is the calling that Jesus gives them. You see, if we were to flip back in the Gospels to the, to the last night of Jesus' life before he's crucified, what we would see is Jesus on trial for his life. Jesus is arrested, 
uh, a whole group of, of officials show up and they arrest Jesus and they put him in a holding place. And after that, they take him before some different groups. They take him before the council. This would have been elders. It would have been religious leaders. You would have had the, the chief priests and scribes. This was kind of the, the religious authority of the day for the Jews. They could make decisions regarding religious matters. So he would have been taken before the council. Then he's taken before Pilate, the Roman governor in the area. And then he's taken before Herod, who isn't exactly a Roman leader. He's, he's a Jew, but he's not really a part of the religious. He's just another layer of bureaucracy and He's taken before them. Then he's taken back before Pilate. He's taken before the council. All these people marched back and forth. And in each situation, people have questions for Jesus. They want to know things. Tell me, did you do this? They, they'll say things like, if you are the Christ, will you tell us? If you are the Messiah, if you're the, the one who was promised, you should tell us. He's asked, are you the king of the Jews? And they, there are other people who have questions of them. They want to know things. And when Jesus is taken before these groups, sometimes there are accusers who show up and they provide testimony. I heard him say this, or I saw him do this. There are people making accusations about him, accusations that carry an immense amount of weight, that, that are blasphemous, the, the kinds of things that, that you could lose your life over. People are throwing accusations against Jesus. And that's the last night of his life. He's arrested and then put on trial from one group to the next. Questions are asked of him. Accusers show up over and over again. And Jesus' very life is hanging in the balance. He would have known this. The people around him would have known this, that his very life was on the line. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was taken to court and my life was hanging in the balance, and people were making accusations about me, there is one thing beyond a shadow of a doubt that I would want to make sure I had in court with me. If people were going to say things that I had said and take them out of context, and, and I wanted to prove my innocence, there is absolutely one thing I would make sure that I had in the courtroom. And you know what that would be? Some witnesses. I would want some people who could come in and set the record straight. No, 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 you've got it all wrong. That didn't happen. Or, yeah, maybe that got said, but that's not the context. Or, oh, no, I saw him do that too, and you're wrong about what that means. I would want some witnesses who could prove my innocence. And Jesus, on the last night of his life, with his life hanging in the balance, doesn't have a single witness. That doesn't mean that there weren't people there who knew the real story. He had been traveling with a group of people for multiple years. They had been with him. They, they were there. They ate the loaves and the fishes when he fed the multitudes. They were there when Jesus would explain what the teachings were all about. They were there in the boat when the waves were getting so big, and they were there when Jesus said, peace be still, and everything calmed down. They saw everything. They knew the real story. They knew what was going on. And yet when Jesus is on trial for his life, they scatter. They leave. Jesus has no witnesses. With his very life on the line, on trial, people making accusations, asking questions about him, every single possible witness flees. Peter even goes so far. He's standing in the courtyard. He's listening to what's happened. And people say, don't you know this guy? And he says, no, I've never met him. 
at all. Three times he does that. Jesus has no witnesses. Fast forward to the book of Acts. The last moment that Jesus and his disciples are going to have together. Jesus gives them the calling and he says, you are going to be my witnesses. And imagine how much that word must have stung for them when Jesus calls them to do that. Don't you know every memory of that last night probably came rushing back in their minds. That thought, oh Jesus, you, no, you can't ask us to do that. Jesus, no, they, just a few weeks ago, you needed some witnesses and we couldn't come through for you. Jesus, when your life was on the line, when you were on trial, nobody, none of us were there as your witnesses. Don't, don't ask us to do that. We can't be witnesses. Anything else, Jesus, we will gl- we'll do anything else, but please don't ask us to do this because we know we can't. We have proven that we will fail at this job. But there's a twist in the story, isn't there? Because Jesus says, you are going to receive power. And power from where? Power from extra effort. I want you to be my witnesses, and this time I want you to just try a little harder. Power from practice. Okay, you're going to be my witnesses, but we're going to go through a routine on how to develop a better speech. Power from just really wanting it this time and gritting their teeth, giving it the old college try. Is that where the power is going to come from? Absolutely not. Jesus doesn't say that they're going to have power that they can find from within themselves to do that which they had already failed at. No, Jesus says, I'm going to supply the power. You are going to have power not from yourselves, not through your own efforts, but power from the Holy Spirit to do that which you already know you can't do in your own strength. Jesus called them to do the very thing that they had already proven that they couldn't do, but Jesus supplies the power for them to do it. And they take that calling and they run with it. And you know how we know that they do it? You know how we know that they trust in this new power? Because we're here today. We're a part of the legacy of the church. Because Peter, because these disciples trusted in the power of the Holy Spirit, the church has continued to grow and move forward across continents, across time, and we are here today. Friends, this is a miracle. But it's a miracle not because of just some really good efforts by a few men a long time ago. It's a miracle because Jesus gave them the power to do what they knew they couldn't do on their own. I'm calling you to be my witnesses. This is a regular pattern throughout the entire Bible. If we were to go back and look at story after story, what we would see is that God is frequently calling people who are not qualified. God is frequently calling people who don't have the power to do this this great task on their own. He picks the people who are overlooked over and over again. 
In the book of Judges, we read about a man named Gideon. And and you don't have to know everything about Gideon except this. Gideon was afraid. When we meet him, he is threshing wheat in a wine press. Threshing wheat is an outdoor activity. The wine press would have been an enclosed space. He's doing this because he's afraid. People have been coming in and taking their possessions, and he's hiding it. He doesn't want anybody to know what he has, the crops that he has. And so he's trying to thresh wheat in a wine press because he's afraid. But an angel shows up and says, greetings, O mighty man of valor. And you know, Gideon's like, wait, is somebody else here? Who are you talking to, O mighty man of valor? Who else is in the room? Because that wasn't him. You see, when the world might have looked at Gideon, they would have seen somebody who was afraid. But when God looked at Gideon, he saw a mighty man of valor, which I wonder what he sees when he looks at your life. Jacob, in the the story in Genesis, is the younger brother. He is awful. He is a heel-grabbing, backstabbing, manipulative jerk. And yet when God saw him, he saw somebody who could lead his people. And I wonder what God sees when he looks at your life. David was the youngest son of Jesse, He's so young and insignificant that that when the prophet shows up to maybe find the next king, they don't even bring him in. They just leave him out in the fields because who could ever want anything from that youngest son, from the shepherd? You see, that's what the world might have seen. But when God saw David, he saw a king. And I wonder, what does God see when he looks at your life? Mary was an unmarried teenager, and yet God saw someone, a servant, who could bear his son, which makes me wonder, what does God see when he looks at your life? Paul was a terrorist. That, that, was, that was his role in life. When we first meet him, Saul is trying to cause fear and doubt and panic in the local church through terrorist activities. And yet God saw an evangelist who could carry the gospel to unreached places. And I wonder what he sees when he looks at your life. And Peter, Peter was someone who had abandoned their friend in their time of need. He denied Jesus, and yet God saw a preacher who would bear witness to everyone that he meets. And I wonder what he sees when he looks at your life. In the Gospel of John, right at the very end, we get this story uh, of Peter And it says that Peter and the disciples are out fishing and they haven't caught anything. And sometimes when there's a Bible story, I can't always like envision the circumstances, right? Say they march through a desert, never done that. There's a big battle, Uh, it's not for me. And they'll, they'll say all of these things and I'm like, I just can't really picture that. But this story says they were fishing for a long time and hadn't caught anything. I know that story, right? Like I have, I've lived that story. And it's been so long that this kind of shadowy figure from the shore calls out and says, you should throw your nets on the other side. And of course, because when you've been fishing and haven't caught anything, you'll try anything. Doesn't matter. Take off one shoe, sure, whatever. I'll try anything. So they throw their nets on the other side and they catch so much fish. And they realize that's not just anyone giving fishing advice. That's Jesus himself. And Peter leaps out of the boat and he swims to shore. And this is the first time that it's just Jesus and Peter. Have you ever let somebody down in an incredible way? Have you ever not come through for somebody when they really needed you and then you had to face them? Imagine what Peter must have been feeling in that moment. 
Jesus' very life was on the line, and Peter wouldn't step forward and say, no, no, I know the truth. And he denies Jesus even after Jesus has warned him. Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times, and Peter does it anyway. And now he has to face Jesus. And I just imagine, Peter's got to be looking down at the ground, probably kicking the sand, because he knows what's about to hit him. This lecture from Jesus. How dumb are you, Peter? Right? I thought I could trust you. I thought I said I was going to build this church and you were going to be a part of it, but I guess not. Right? You're just one big failure, Peter. I gave you the warning and you didn't even listen to me. You're ridiculous. Just go. I don't need you anymore. You know he had to be stealing his nerves just waiting on Jesus to deliver this lecture. But in that moment, Peter looks over and he sees some fish cooking on the fire. And he gets the smell, smell of warm bread in the air. And Peter realizes Jesus isn't going to give him a lecture. Jesus has instead cooked him breakfast. And Jesus welcomes him back in and reaffirms his calling to be a leader, be a witness, be a part of this movement that Jesus is going to build. I don't know what failures you bring in today. I don't know what shame. I don't know what you think may keep you from fulfilling the call that Jesus has placed on your life, but I guarantee none of us are any different than Peter. Peter had let Jesus down, and yet Jesus welcomes him back in. And my friends, you can be welcomed back in. The same calling that Jesus gave to these disciples, he gives to you today to be his witnesses. We get to be a part of the miracle that is the church. The church that has endured across time, across locations, across technology, across every hardship you could imagine, across every circumstance that should have ended the church the church endures because Jesus promised he would build it. And in his very last words on earth, he reminds them that not only is he going to build the church, he, that God will supply the power that they need to be his witnesses. My friends, may we be the witnesses. May we share the story of God's faithfulness. And when we feel weak and incapable, May we remember that God will provide all of the power we need through the gift of his Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me?